You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today we will be reading from Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, through to chapter 12, verse 13. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Thank you, Beck. Very well read. Bit of a longer reading, but well done. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. 
It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be back after a week away at Men's Retreat. Thanks, Jim and Jono, for sharing. It was a cracking weekend. Really was an awesome time to be together, um, to share together, uh, to grow together, to watch the Matildas victory together. If you had said a year ago, you're going to be on a men's retreat watching a women's soccer semi-final and you'd all be enjoying it, um, I wouldn't have believed you. But man, it was so much fun. The topic was um, unraveling emotions. And you just think, huh, I wonder how that's going to go on a men's retreat. Uh and I, I must admit, uh, you know, I, I booked it and, you know, let's guys get, let's go up here. And I, and I saw the topic come up. I thought, hmm, how's this going to go? It was amazing. So uh, ask one of the 23 blokes that was there and they'll be sure to tell you uh, it was great. Um, be in prayer for the women, 36 women going away next week. So you've beaten us this year, gals, but come on, boys, we can get there next year. Awesome stuff. Well, today we continue in our story in Exodus, epic story of Exodus, hasn't it been? It really is one of the great stories of all time, I think. Uh, if you're, you've been traveling, this is our first week, a fifth week rather. If you're new, this is your first week and you might be thinking, what on earth have I come into? We'll give you a bit of a back, background a little bit in this story. But today particularly is an exciting moment. Each week there's been an exciting moment, but today particularly here's why God makes good on his promise. Today God makes good. God rescues his people. Israel walks out of Egypt. What looked totally impossible, not improbable, impossible at the beginning of the book now happens. Amazing stuff. We're going to witness this week and next Israel walk out of Egypt into freedom. Now, if you were listening when Beck was reading, you would have noticed, man, this passage is awesome. It's amazing. Pretty fantastic. It's also confronting. Can we say it? It's confronting. Also kind of difficult to understand. Let's admit that. But despite this today, in a whole series in Exodus, really, every time we open the Bible, we see what God is like. What am I learning about God from this? We really are going to see particularly today. We'll answer that question. What is God like? What are, we, what are we learning about him today? What we're learning is he is a rescuer. That's who he is. It's part of his character. You can't take that away from him. God is a rescuer. And here's a question I want to tackle this morning. How does he do it? How does God rescue now, there's going to be some things we come across in this passage that are hard to, to understand, some issues, and we're going, to, we're going to confront them. We're going to, if we have time, maybe we won't. No, we're going to, we're going to talk about them, okay? We're going, to, we're going to confront them as we go. But I want to particularly answer that question, how does God rescue? Because it's very relevant to you and I, all right? How does God rescue? Quick overview of where we're up in the story. We started this story with a but with. A small extended family moving to a foreign country. That's how this thing started. 70-odd people move into the safety of Egypt because of Joseph. He has a senior role in the Egyptian government. He's able to bring his family into the safety of Israel from the drought. Hundreds of years pass and this 70 people turn into hundreds of thousands of people. This is the Hebrews, Israel, God's chosen people. 
and they grow and grow and grow. And this makes the king, the new king, the pharaoh, really, really nervous because now he has a foreign people turning into a nation on his doorstep, very, very numerous, and he sees them as a threat. So what does he do? He enslaves them. Do you remember? He enslaves them. I'm going to put a stop to them. I'm going to crush them, crush their spirit. I'll enslave them. That doesn't really work because they keep growing. So I'm going to pretty brutally kill the babies. I'm going to get some midwives in and I'm going to tell them, hey, when a baby boy is born, I want you to kill them. They refuse. And so then he just has this blanket decree. That's it. Every Hebrew Israelite baby boy who's born throw them into the river. Now remember that because that's pretty relevant for our passage today. Pharaoh himself issues this decree, kill all the boys, throw them into the river. And at this particular time, guess who's born? Moses. He's born at this critical time. Oh no, but this is when baby boys are meant to die. What's God going to do? He does something totally miraculous and crazy. Who rescues Baby Moses, none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. What a twist of irony. And Moses ends up growing up in the Egyptian palace as a privileged Egyptian, even though he's a Hebrew. Fast forward a few years, Moses is an adult. He grows up in privileged Pharaoh's home. Can you believe that? What was that like when they pass each other in the corridor? I don't know. Anyway, Moses is out. He sees an Egyptian soldier beating one of his own people. And he reacts. He kills the soldier and hides him. So people find out, Pharaoh finds out, Moses is filled with fear, fair enough, and he runs away into the wilderness, into obscurity. He thinks probably to live out my days in obscurity. Time passes, he marries, he has kids. And then we know, Caleb dealt with this two weeks ago, God meets him. In the wilderness, do you remember? In a burning bush. He says, Pharaoh, I've got a plan. Uh, sorry, Moses, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to rescue my people and I'm going to use you to do it. And what does Moses say? Count me in, Lord. He says, me? No. Yes, you. Me? No. Yes, you. Me? The guy behind me? Anybody else? Remember? Five times he said no. And the last thing he says is, please send somebody else. God says, I will be with you. You got to you go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And really, from this point on, up until the passage that we are looking at today, what I just found fascinating doing prep for this is no one believes God. No one believes him. They think this plan is ridiculous. It's not going to work. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. My God, Yahweh, told me to come here and tell you that. Pharaoh says, I've never heard of your God, and I don't care what he has to say. I'm not letting you go. Moses says, bad stuff's going to happen if you don't. Pharaoh laughs in his face. And then he makes things worse. He makes the working conditions of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, worse. The people go to Moses and say, this is a terrible plan. This is a horrible idea. Moses goes to God and says, God, this is a terrible plan, a horrible idea. It's not going to work, God. Your plan is terrible. God's rescue plan at that point in time looks stupid and impossible. I just couldn't help but thinking, imagine if God limited himself to the faith of his people. 
If you thought about that for your life, I, I was confronted with that fact today. Imagine if God was limited by my level of faith. What would happen? What wouldn't happen? I tell you, one thing that, that would happen, Israel would still be in Egypt if God limited himself to the level of faith of his people. But he does not, and praise God that he does not. God then gets to work, doesn't he? God gets to work through the 10 plagues. Kara did such a great job last week walking us through the plagues. What does it show us? It shows us that God is powerful. These crazy plagues, 10 of them, shows that God is the God of creation. He's also the God of decreation, right? Listen to the message from last week if you, if you, didn't, uh, if you weren't here for it because really it's great. Also, Kara showed us that each plague seems to be targeted at a particular god of Egypt. They had many gods and each god represented different things and each plague was attacking them. You think these gods are real? Because, <laughs> of course, what's God doing here? He's rescuing his people, but he's also bringing judgment against the gods of Egypt, the so-called gods of Egypt. He's exposing them for what they really are, which is false gods. You might have noticed if you've read through the plague narratives or you heard last week, there's this pattern, right? Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. The plague comes. Pharaoh says, please stop the plagues. Um, well, are you going to let my people go? Okay, fine, you can go. Moses prays to God. The plague stops. Pharaoh changes his mind. And then the next plague comes and so on. There's a few changes, but really that's the pattern of it. So pl plague comes, okay, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, until we get to plague number 10. And that's our focus for today. We're focusing on the 10th plague and what comes after that. It's the climax of the plague narratives because it's all ending, it's all going to one point. And what's the point? It is Exodus, the exit. That's what it means, ex the exodus of God's people. That's why these plagues are coming upon the Egyptians to free God's people. But if you've been tracking with us, you're listening to the reading, you know the story, or maybe, I don't know, you've got a pulse, you might have thought, whoa, this last plague's pretty heavy. It feels like things just stepped up a whole level, right? It's confronting. Yes, there's something terrifying about some of the plagues. Hail falling from heaven would be pretty freaky. Water turning to blood or uh, darkness so thick you can feel it. That seems pretty freaky. But man, we're talking about death here. The death of every firstborn son in Egypt. Whew, heavy, heavy stuff. This really is the only plague here where reversal is not possible. It's a tenth plague for a reason. It's, this is heavy. And you might be thinking, my goodness, this seems brutal. This is violent. What are we to do with this? God, was this really necessary? I mean, did you have to do it this way? Was it the only way? Was this the best way? It seems violent. It seems brutal. Anyone else feeling this? I'm feeling this. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, the death of the Egyptian firstborn, it takes us back to what? Chapter 1, Pharaoh's own decree, every Hebrew baby born will die. 
So we can kind of see this 10th plague as maybe a bit of retribution, payback for what Pharaoh wanted to do to God's people. Is there more going on? And I think that leads us to another question that comes up. Kara dealt with it well, briefly, but well last week. If only Pharaoh wasn't so stubborn, he could have avoided this. You know, if he just relented a bit earlier, this, this calamity wouldn't have happened. All this death could have been avoided. But hang on a second. Is Pharaoh responsible for his actions? Didn't I hear something about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? What do we do with that? We'll come back to it if we have time. No, we'll come back to it. Okay, so final plague is announced. Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence. I love this little bit, hot with anger. I like, you ever been hot with anger? I love that. Hot with anger for the last time for Pharaoh and Moses. That's it. Scene is set now for the devastation to come. All right. What's going to happen next? While that's going on, while judgment comes on the Egyptians, what are God's people, the Israelites, supposed to do? Right? When God brings crazy judgment, you know, intense judgment on the Egyptians, what are God's people supposed to do? Get some popcorn, sit on their roofs, and watch their enemies crumble? No. It's really significant what happens next. Okay, we're going to have to do some work together. So I hope you've had your coffee. We're just, just for kind of five minutes or so, we're going to have to do some work. Are you with me? All right, let's do this together. Yahweh, God gives clear instructions to Moses of what his people are supposed to do. They're supposed to do something, something special. And to us, it's quite peculiar. It's quite strange. And they're not meant to do it just once, but every year to mark what God is doing for them. He does not want them to forget. You might have picked that up. God institutes what? A ritual. Okay. He, he creates a ritual that's supposed to become part of the culture. It's what Jewish people still practice today. It's going to help them remember it, but not just remember it, to burn it into their brains as individuals, as, an occult, as a culture. It helps them teach God the, their children and their children's children for generations to come. So what are they supposed to do? It revolves around, Kara mentioned it before, what we now know as Passover. Firstly, the first thing God's people are supposed to do is what? Change your calendars. Take them off a wall and rip them up. You're getting a new calendar. Notice the symbolism, right? New creation, something new. What you're about to do marks the beginning of your year now. Change your calendar. Things are going to become different. Next, while I'm dealing with your enemies who have oppressed you for generations and generations, I want you to take a lamb from a sheep or a goat, take a lamb, sacrifice it. I want you to kill it. Now, the lamb can't be the runt of the litter, a lamb who's about to die anyway. I want you to take a lamb that's perfect without blemish. We'll remember that for later. And if you're a small family, gather it together with another family. If you're a large family, you can do it just as a family, probably an extended family. Roast the meat. It's pretty specific, isn't it? Roast the meat. Don't boil it. Don't eat it raw. I want you to eat it with bitter herbs. 
It's not explained in the passage, but probably to symbolize the bitterness of their experience of slavery in the land of Egypt. And here's where things get a little bit weird if they're not weird already. What I want you to do is when you sacrifice the lamb, keep the blood, drain it at a bowl. Then get a branch from a particular tree, a hyssop tree, hyssop plant. And I want you to dip a branch, that branch, into a bowl. And I want you to do some painting. I want you to paint the blood of the lamb on the door, on the top of the door, the lintel, and the door posts. <laughs> what is going on? Why does God tell his people to do this? If you know the story, you know what's about to happen. Okay, you know the destroyer, that is God, the same, they're both used in this passage, which is also confronting. He's about to come through Egypt and enact the 10th plague. Okay, the death of the Egyptian firstborns. And when he comes through the land and sees the sign of the blood from the lamb, death will not enter that house. The blood is a sign. Okay, we just remember that. The blood is a sign. And here's where the name comes from. Yahweh will see the blood and pass over the homes that have the blood on the doorway. You see the name for Passover, Passover, the homes that have the sign of the blood. The firstborns won't die in that house if they have the blood. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. But I found myself thinking, but what, why is it necessary? I mean, God knows who the Israelites are. He knows everything. Why does he need this particular sign? Why couldn't he just not enact judgment on them? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. Glad you asked. And, and I think, firstly, we've just got to say, this is tough to grasp for modern Mossman people, I think. We are far away from this culture, right? I think there would have been some pre-understanding for this ancient people, Right? It may have made more immediate sense to them. Sacrifice a lamb, display the blood in the doorway. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Makes sense. But for us, it is a gap. Can we just admit that? It's a gap of time and culture. They were living at a time, animal sacrifice, very, very common. All right. But I think there's some key takeaways. You ready? Some key takeaways for us, even though thousands of years later, separated by cultures, and I think it's this. For them and for us. Something they needed to remember, they were never to forget it. Same for us. The blood of that lamb that had been spilled covered them. So you can translate Passover as to cover as well, right? Passover can be translated as cover. Their redemption, their rescue, their freedom, their new life, it costs something. It costs something. The life they were to experience, it actually came from death. It cost something. It just didn't cost them. The lamb, well, that took the cost because that had died in their place, see? All of this is a sign that the people inside are placing themselves under the protection of God and they'll be spared. Okay, you did well. You did well. You stayed with me. Thanks. Just mention a bit as well. In this section, if you read it, we, we cut a bit out of it. Um, there's lots of instruction given around Passover, how to eat it, and particularly around bread. 
There's a lot of talk about bread in this passage. It's, it's insane, like, like a lot. And in the Bible, when there's repetition, it means we're supposed to pay attention, okay? It's symbolic. They talk a lot about making bread, particularly whatever you do, whatever you do, don't add yeast. You're just thinking, why is this important? Here's why. I don't know much about cooking. I'm pretty hopeless at it, really. But yeast is, what, what do you do? to, to you, It makes the bread rise, okay? And that takes time. You add it to the dough, you put the yeast in, and you set it aside, and it takes a while to rise. Here's the deal with this. You don't have time. This meal is to be eaten in haste. <clears throat> and you are supposed to eat bread without yeast. Why? Because you're to remember God saved you. And after he did, you didn't have time. You had to leave Egypt very, very quickly. The whole meal is constructed around remembering what God has done for them. Okay, had to talk about that. Right, so instructions for the Passover meal are given. It's eaten and God carries out his threat on the rich and oppressive, powerful nation of Egypt. And we're told... There's not a household in Egypt without wailing and crying. That's a full-on picture, isn't it? There's devastation in the nation of Egypt. And finally, finally, this prompts Pharaoh to call for Israel's release. Finally. Pharaoh has completely capitulated. This has broken him. It's broken his nation. And there's a sense of urgency, as God said there would be. Eat this meal in haste. Tuck your cloaks into your belts. Have your sandals on while you're eating it, because as soon as it's finished, you're out. Pharaoh is now fearful of the true and living God and his people. And he says, get out, take whatever you want and get out. And they do. And even the people, the Egyptians, urge the Israelites to leave. And this is a fascinating thing. As the Israelites do, we're told they plunder the Egyptians. What does that mean? It means God made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites. So they got their wealth. So as they were leaving, an Israelite said, hey, nice gold necklace. Can I have that? And they said, yeah, sure. And they gave them to him. And so we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people left the wealthiest nation in the world with their riches. Isn't God amazing? It's crazy. Now, all of this is telling us something. It's telling us there's the idea that the Israelites, what do they do? They march out of the front door of Egypt with their dignity held high. They don't slink out the back door. God's promise, God's plan has worked, and Israel are walking out the front door in dignity. It's incredible. Well, we are now on the cusp of God's people leaving Egypt, the Exodus. Next week, we're going to dive back in and we're going to look at more of the story. It's, it's a long, extended story of how they actually leave. We'll see them take their first part in the journey. Journey. Something happens at the Red Sea. But for now, what we're going to do is pause. We're going to pause and we're going to ask some questions of this passage. Yep. We're going to pause and, and ask, man, what do we take home as Christians from this passage that's you know, 3,000 years plus old, what do we take from this? And, and as we said before, there are a few tough things that come up that we should deal with. So let's do that. Let's do that together. What does it mean for us?
Well, let's start by looking at our mate, Pharaoh. Should we do that? Let's look at him. Here's the question. Is Pharaoh responsible for his actions? Should, we, should he be held responsible? Or is he just controlled by God, like a chess piece on the board? Is he powerless to do anything else? Is he responsible or was God controlling him? Yes. Let's have a look. We're told three things in the plague's narrative. Kara did deal with this a bit last week, but we're going to dive back in and have a look. Three things in the plague narrative we're told about Pharaoh. They are Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We're just told that as well. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. All three are there. And I don't think it's an accident that all three are used. So which one is it? Well, there's a reason all three are mentioned. As mentioned last week, Pharaoh is not a nice character. He is not a nice character. He was a brutal, violent, ruthless tyrant. He's a dictator, the, the Putin of his day, probably worse. He set himself up as a god and demanded to be worshipped as one by his people. So his heart was already hard. Pharaoh's responsible for his actions. It's not like God turned a righteous person evil. It's not like that. And yet, we are told explicitly that God did harden Pharaoh's heart, particularly towards the end of the plague's narrative. So what do we do with that? You know what? God tells us why he does. God tells us why he hardens Pharaoh's heart. He says, so my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. What does that mean? So that Egypt will know that its gods and the pretender God-man Pharaoh is just that, pretend. Pharaoh is on the receiving end of God's mighty act of judgment. God uses him for his divine purposes to expose him, to show the Egyptians the truth. And I hear you going, yeah, you kind of sidestep the question there. Which one is it though? God controlled him or he's responsible. It can only be one, can't it? Get ready for it. It's both. Both are clearly taught in the Bible. And I still know what you're thinking. You know, that can't possibly be true. Both can't be true. It doesn't make sense. To us, it may not make sense. But it might make sense to a brain that is infinitely larger than ours. God uses our responsibility and his sovereignty together. Right? Just because we can't understand it, it doesn't mean it's impossible. Both are taught in the Bible, and therefore I think both should be held in tension. Is God in control? Yes. Do our actions matter? Yes. I remember hearing in science class, I was not a very good science student, but for a long while it was thought light moved in waves and then it was not light moves in particles. And now we know that it's both. And how can it be? It has to be one or the other. We don't quite know, but we do know that light moves in waves and particles. I, I think this is a moment for us, as Cara mentioned last week, to acknowledge that there is mystery in this, that God is God. And I don't think that's a cop-out, actually. I think it's a chance for us to worship 
and to thank God that he is in control and we are not. Because I can barely run my own life. I'm thankful that I'm not in control of the universe. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, I think we would be too. It's a chance for us to worship God. He runs the universe and we don't. I think it's also helpful to remember that Pharaoh here in this, he is the personification of evil. And he has set himself up against God and his promises. And he's also a very particular character in a story, right? So I think we should be very slow to make the direct correlation between how God might act toward him and act toward us or others, yeah? Okay, we've talked about Pharaoh. You may still have questions. Talk to Caleb after the service. (laughs) All right, let's deal with another one. No, no, seriously, feel free to come and talk to us. Okay, let's, let, let's deal with another issue that comes up, but I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. The brutal nature of this story. The brutal nature of this 10th plague. Now, remember the question for today, which we haven't really answered yet, which we will. How does God save? We'll get there. How does God save? We'll answer it in a minute. But this story, this is relevant because this story is about what? Rescue. It's about saving. The whole book's about saving. It's also about judgment, not as nice. He all, God saves and he also judges. He rescues God's people. Yeah, we can celebrate that. And he brings judgment. Uh, not as comfortable. The saving bit's great. It's good. It's nice. The judgment bit is confronting. I think it's okay to feel that. Like I said before, it's not easy for us to sit with, particularly in this time and place. But I think it's interesting. I think maybe more than any other time in history, we love the idea of justice and we believe in it. And I think that's, as a culture, I think that's wonderful. That's something Christians can absolutely relate with people who are outside of the church. We believe in justice. How good is that? We love the idea of justice. And I think a lot of people love the idea of a God who cares about justice. But we also a bit like, oh, can you please be the judge and the destroyer of evil, but do it in a nice way that doesn't offend people? You know, this week uh, I found myself flicking, as I do, watching TV, and I stumbled on a, a documentary talking about the riots and the protests in Iran over the last year or so. You probably know about it. Wow, it's full on. It's very confronting. I mean, it's similar to what Kara was talking about before with the Pakistani Muslims attacking Christians. It's full on. And uh, these riots, uh, protests started in Iran after a young woman was arrested for not wearing a headscarf properly. She was, take, she was arrested, taken into police custody and was beaten and died of her injuries. Horrific. And, of course, this enraged many in the population of Iran Mass protests and riots sprung up all over the country. And during the protesting and the riots, many people died, particularly young women were targeted as they protested the harsh laws that are around them. The regime controls them about what they what they can do, what they can't do, what the how they what they wear. Toward the end of the riots, two men were executed for their role in the protests. I tell you what, it's difficult to watch this and not feel moved and not feel sad and angry. The regime, it's brutal, vicious, evil, violent, callous, 
They, and they harshly persecute our Christian brothers and sisters over there, absolutely. It's hard not to be moved and angered by it. And I think you'd have to ask questions of yourself if you're not. I think it's right for us to say that regime deserves justice. I mean, these men that beat women, they deserve justice. And the Bible says one day they will. I mean, if me, I'm watching something like this, I'm a, a sinful man with mixed motives and I get angered at the injustice of the world where the strong prey on the vulnerable, how do you think God feels? I mean, he is perfect and pure and the, he is a righteous judge. And that's good, isn't it? I, mean, I think there's part of it as well, we can't tame God. We don't want to. He is the great I am. He is the author of love grace, mercy, and justice. It's a good thing. A judge without mercy is a tyrant. A judge without justice is a pathetic pushover. We don't get that in God. We can rest assured his justice and goodness, they're better than ours. We've got to be careful to, to judge him by our standards, right? Good and perfect judge that is worthy of trusting. We can hand it over to him. All right, let's keep moving. We're almost done. Let's keep moving. And let's actually answer our question for today, how does God save? It's related to a lot of this. Simply put, I think he teaches us here that he seems to save by substitution. What does that mean? I think not everything is clear in this passage. We've, we've looked at that. It'll become clearer later in, through the Old Testament People are to make right, to atone for their sin in the temple. It's the sacrificial system. But there's no mention of any of that really here. There's no mention of sin in this passage. There is only the idea that their rescue, salvation, redemption, freedom is secured and made possible. Why? Because of the blood of another. That's really clear in the passage, isn't it? God's made a way, and it's this way. Why? They are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And as Christians, come on, what does this mean for us? All of this points to the Lamb who died, right? God saves by substitution. And the gospel writers make this pretty clear. Paul, just pretty plainly, 1 Corinthians 5 says this, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. The gospel writers make it really clear. What time did Jesus die? He died at Passover. At the exact time the priests in the temple were to be sacrificing the Passover lambs, Jesus hung on the cross, not an accident. He is our Passover lamb. And we've talked about the brutality of this story. And let's, we've confronted that. Let's keep confronting that. Here's the thing, though. It's, it's there in Exodus, the, the violence. But I think we've been conditioned. And I think the story of Christianity has been sanitized if we miss the brutality of the New Testament. Because Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect, undeserved, undeserving of punishment, the perfect lamb without blemish, dies. 
The Bible says all the sin of the world is put on him. If you don't think that's brutal, you haven't thought about that. (laughs) He dies willingly, gives his blood, so death passes over us and lands on him. Our freedom, redemption, rescue, life comes from the death of another. And just because we don't pay the cost ourselves doesn't mean it wasn't costly. It cost the life of Christ. And what else can we take from this passage as Christians? Well, there's something in ritual, don't you think? There's something in ritual. A Baptist pastor saying that, eh? There's something in ritual, right? We remember what God has done for us in Christ. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Just like God's people were to never forget what God did for them in the Exodus. The Passover wasn't just something that happened once. Every year they had to mark it. One writer said, I really like this. He said, in every generation, a person must regard themselves as if they themselves came forth out of Egypt. Right? As if they were there. Generations of Jews after the Exodus were to think of themselves as participating in the Exodus. Yeah, but I wasn't there. Take yourself there. Because what happened, it was done for you on your behalf. Even if you weren't there, you are living the results of it now. You're free because of it, you see. You benefit from the sacrifice of that lamb on that day. Come on. The comparison's so clear. For Christians, for us, communion, the Lord's Supper, is to be a lasting reminder of what God did for us in Christ. God's final act of deliverance rescued us, freed us from a a bondage more terrible than slavery to a tyrant king, right? The Lord's Supper, communion, it's a symbol of a theological truth. What does that mean? A truth about who we are with God, that we're one with Christ. That is sacrifice 2,000 years ago many thousands of miles away, was relevant to you right now in this moment, it matters. That's how powerful the cross of Christ is. Reverberates through the world, through the ages. It means something for us today. We weren't there, but we can participate in it by faith. It applies to us. We look back by faith and experience its benefit by faith. And we get to do it in a tangible way. This morning is what we're going to do. It's what we do monthly here at this church when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a meal of remembrance. So that's what we're going to do right now. We join with many Christians around the world today who do this. What brothers and sisters have done throughout the centuries where the Passover lamb is replaced with other symbols. Christ is our Passover lamb, and so we have different symbols of bread and wine, representing the the body and the blood of Christ. And we receive life in him because of it. So what we're going to do, we're going to celebrate communion you know, in a similar way that we've done before. Can I invite you to do something maybe a little bit different? Different churches celebrate it differently, and that's great. That's totally fine. We've got some time, and I'd love you to take your time in this meal of remembrance. So what we're going to do, instead of taking the elements and going back to your seat, I'd love for you to come up here and take your time 
as we celebrate it. The person is going to say, the body of Christ given for you, and then move on to the it's juice we use, the blood of Christ given for you. And I'd like you to take that element there in front of that person and take a moment rather than rush back to your seat. And for everyone else who's experienced, you know, who's already had communion, I invite you to grab your seat, be prayerful, let's try and be quiet in these moments. And let's use this as a time to individually and as a community remember what Christ has done. Yep, hopefully clear. Sounds good. All right, well, invite the community help us to come on down. The band's going to play something quiet as we do this. And just before we do, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession to prepare our hearts. So church, let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we want to come before you this morning and be vulnerable and be honest with you. We can hide nothing from you. So, Lord, we admit that we've gone our own way, not loving you as we should, nor loving our neighbour as ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word and deed, and in what we've failed to do. We deserve your condemnation, but we praise you and thank you that we receive grace instead. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbour and to live for your honour and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.